You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. My co-host today is none other than Harvey Rishikoff, Senior Counselor to the Standing Committee and former chair. Among his many positions, the polymath that he is, he's also Director of Policy and Cybersecurity Research and Visiting Research Professor at University of Maryland's Applied Research Laboratory for Intelligence and Security. That's a lot of words, Harvey. That's really a lot of words. I know it's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm, I, do you, you don't look embarrassed, though. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> I, have, I have the largest business card in Western Christendom, so it's embarrassing, yes. Well, it's <laughs> Talmudic in size. I'm really glad you're hanging out with me today. But we're going to talk about something that I've never had to brief in my entire career or deal with in any way, and that is Article 5 of the Constitution. And I'm looking for a metaphor, some sort of reference to Greek or Roman mythology here, or maybe Norse mythology about a thing that could be used for the good of all, but also for the absolute destruction of all mankind. So what would that be? So I would say that given who we are between Professor Feingold and Peter, that really it's the Talmudic notion of the Ten Commandments, because we treat the Constitution as almost the word of God, but we all know it's not the word of God. It's really the word of the people. And that what makes this book so interesting is that when it explores an obscure part of the Constitution that is often not belabored in constitutional law, but could become one of the more dramatic articles, depending how things work out over the next few months or so. Right. Well, let's hope they do work out. But that that you've just now previewed. So our guests tonight are Russ Feingold, who served in the United States Senate from 1993 to 2011. He's now president of the American Constitution Society. He was a professor at Stanford University Law School, but he's also the author of While America Sleeps. He also won the John F. Kennedy Profiles in Courage Award. So we're delighted to have him on tonight, but we're also gifted to have Peter Prindeville, whose name I pronounced perfectly correctly, I am sure. He is a non-resident fellow at Stanford's Constitutional Law Center. He's also a former fellow on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And most importantly, he is a former high school history teacher, the coolest of all (laughs) jobs. And we're just really happy to have you here and to talk about your new book, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Welcome. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. So I think what we'd start off with the first question for both of you is, as you know, there's a great deal of debate these days about the founding fathers and their intent vis-a-vis the original document and how we use the Federalist Papers Mm -hmm. to get perspective on what their goals were. How do you see your book shedding light on that particular issue, particularly with respect to Article 5? Well, you know, certainly I'm not a, an originalist in the strict sense, and, and nor even a textualist. I believe that they are, it's helpful to look at original intent and the text and the context. But when it comes to something like Article 5, when you have absolutely no actual history of a convention being called and no record of how it might work over time, what you basically have is the text and you have some history of what was intended to help you and to start with. Not only are there little hints and a few comments in the Federalist Papers, not that much. They were mostly trying to sell this thing and 
basically telling the anti-federalists that, you know, it's not going to be too hard, but reassuring others that it wouldn't be done all the time. Madison said famously that Article 5 should only be used on great and extraordinary occasions. Having said that, though, we did a pretty good dive on what we know from James Madison and his notes about how this thing went through the process in Philadelphia. And the really interesting thing that we try to emphasize is the very first proposal, the Virginia plan, which was thrown on the table to start the whole thing, had an amendment provision. And it ended up being the first one ever in a constitution. And the amendment provision said that there should be the ability to have uh, changes in the convention, but that the national government should have no involvement. In other words, that there would be no congressional amendment mechanism at all, or Congress couldn't veto it. This went through the committee on detail for a while over that hot summer that we wrote about that everybody always writes about. And the yeah, detail came out essentially saying, yeah, Congress can simply in a ministerial way say, yes, if a convention is called for, you have to do it. But they didn't provide for a congressional initiation. Well, it came out and Hamilton objected. Alexander Hamilton persuaded the group nine to one voting by states that there should be only congressional amendments and no conventions. And that stayed that way till the, you know, the very end, and according to Madison's notes. But George Mason said, okay, then we're not, we're not going to do this. And at the last minute, basically, they threw in this convention provision, essentially a compromise, a, almost an inherent tension. And so that's kind of how it happened. It, it appeared to be rather sudden. I just add that it's quite clear from both the records of the 1787 convention and, and the ratification debates but also more broadly, the intense discussion about the nature of constitutionalism during the Revolutionary War and that, that initial decade, that the founding generation saw constitutional amendment as the cornerstone of the new American conception of constitutionalism. So Article 5, in many ways, was a manifestation of debates about what it meant to have a nation that was constituted by the people, and that it was a living manifestation of the Declaration's claim that it was the power of the people to form their government and to reform their government. And so we argue that this is a founding element of our national tradition that in many ways has been lost and, and needs to be rekindled in the modern era. Well, I'd like to go back, though, because we see some similarities in our country today and at the time of the beginning of this discussion, I guess. And I'd like for you to sort of set the stage for us, the economy of this fledgling new country took a turn that you rarely think about when you're watching, let's say, musical theater about this time in history. Tell us what happened and how that sort of led to the need for Article 5. Sure. So the first decade of the country's history was not too pleasant. The country was awash in an economic depression, was the states and the federal government under the Articles of Confederation were carrying massive debt loads from European debtors and the French to fund the war. And it became apparent quite quickly that the Articles of Confederation weren't working. We start our second chapter looking at Shays Rebellion, which was an agrarian uprising in Massachusetts, primarily in response to increasing taxes. The Massachusetts government, due to its debt load, kept raising taxes, and there was massive inflation. As we note in, in the book, you know, there were some counties where a significant percentage of the land in the county had to be foreclosed on by the state, you know, upwards of 40 to 50 percent. And this led to a, an uprising. George Washington was really alarmed by this uprising. It, it seemed as if the young country wouldn't be able to survive. 
And the federal government's attempts to address these concerns failed, in part because of the Articles of Confederation, which were seriously troubled. And so this led Washington to go to the 1787 convention. Uh, We note in the book that he really didn't want to go. He had retired from public life and was content farming on the shores of the Potomac. But he was so alarmed by Shays' Rebellion and the state of the nation. He, he There's a quote we have in the book about how luck had never been so kind to them, but it, was, it might be all gone. And, and so he goes to the convention and he remarks at the end to his citizen, his fellow citizens, that the handiwork of the convention was flawed. The Constitution wasn't perfect, he said, but he encouraged citizens nonetheless because it could be changed. He saw the new constitution as the essential element to ensure that this you know, burgeoning experiment in democracy could endure. And it would, was precisely because of constitutional amendment that he thought the document was worthy of ratification. So it's a really important founding of our national story, the, the inability of a weak central government to address pressing needs and how that inspired the government we have today. And I might just add a footnote, if I might, that uh, Peter has obviously beautifully explained that. You know, in addition, just given the fact that this is a national security podcast, there was tremendous concern on the Articles of Confederation that individual states were conducting their own foreign policy. And if you think about the implications of returning the power to the states, I'll bet it wouldn't be long, given this current environment, where some of that goes on as well. So th- th- this has this dissolution effect that is reminiscent of the Articles of Confederation. So let me just jump on that. So I just know for the record that one of the aspects of the Articles of Confederation, which I've always enjoyed, was they invited Canada to join the Union if they so wanted. Uh, the only time I've ever there's ever a document that invites another entity to come forward as I'm originally Canadian. And we saw you as sort of the rebellious colonialists didn't fully grasp the role of the crown. But in that context, one of the enduring issues that we thought had been resolved but continues is this issue of the relation of federal power and state power. And I would argue that the Rehnquist court tried a number of times to evolve more power to the states. And this new court is taking a very strong status approach on a variety of subjects. And I'm curious as to your gentleman's sensibility of what is, in your mind, the right balance of state power and congressional federal power? Well, I'll kick it off by saying that I've always had enormous regard for the idea of federalism in the sense of, you know, two different levels of government, the experimentation at the state level. My state's great pride was that we were the experimenter. We were the ones in the early 20th century that created the first unemployment laws, unemployment compensation, child work laws. Uh, the idea of social security came out of the University of Wisconsin. So we, we like this laboratory of the state's idea. Obviously, it has its limits. There are certain things that uh, I certainly believe have to be uh, national in scope to solve problems, to protect individual rights. But the thing to keep in mind about this, this movement is they're not actually talking about the states per se. They're not talking about the state's popular will. In fact, they're going against the idea of the popular will on state with gerrymandering, with creating, this is, this is the power of the state legislatures, not even the governors. The governors are cut out of this application process. So what it really is, is an attempt by the minorities in the states to capture through gerrymandering the state legislatures and even cut out the Supreme Courts. As we know, in this independent state legislature theory, the whole basis of it is the legislature can even disregard the ruling of a state Supreme Court. So it's not really federalism. 
its federalism tainted and skewed against the popular will, even in the state's potential. That's a pretty frightening thought that we've lost that sort of ability to credit all Americans in this process. But we're staring down the barrel of another continuing resolution as we're recording this. One of the things that played a role in this as well was Congress's then ability to fund itself and carry out the business of government. Let's talk a little bit about that for just a minute. Well, you know, it's interesting that that is critical, of course. And one of the things this movement has a lot of good luck with is this sort of movement for constitutional convention is saying, you know, we need a, we need a balanced budget amendment. They came very close in the 80s to having a constitutional balanced budget amendment. I fought it vigorously in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and, and I think it only lost by one vote. Now, that isn't necessarily a crazy idea. In fact, it has a lot of appeal that, that you know, people say, well, you know, in the states, you usually have to balance a budget. At your houses, you have to balance a budget. Of course, it doesn't really reflect the reality of what it's like to have a national debt and to, to, to the deal with international economic issues. But they actually kind of use this piece of it, the idea of simply requiring a balanced budget, to segue themselves into a broader constitutional convention that could involve anything. We don't, Peter and I don't believe they're going to just call a constitutional convention so they can get a balanced budget amendment. And, and I think you could also say that other elements of this movement, again, there are, there are a number of different groups that have different aims. But once, a, and we can talk about this later, but once a convention is called, its subject matter can't be limited. So you have to kind of think about what is the broad spectrum of agendas and then what could be waiting in the wings. Well, one of these groups is quite blunt, and they make hay on the claim that they want to get rid of the income tax. In an era where we have so many free trade agreements, you know, if you don't have many tariffs, I, don't, I, I struggle to think about how the federal government would, would be able to draw sufficient revenue without an income tax to meet the modern needs, national security threats, and others of a large central government in modern life. And again, all we have to do is look to the Articles of Confederation. There, it was very hard for the Confederation Congress to draw income. And indeed, the federal government was unable to secure loans because the states often refused to pay their share. And so nobody would extend a loan. And that posed existential national security risks. And you can see that in the history leading up to the 1787 convention. It was very much a, a concern about invasion. The government would be unable to muster an army. And Shays' Rebellion, like we said before, was really the five-alarm fire example well, if we can't even domestic rebellion, how in the world could we defend ourselves from foreign invasion? And as Harvey mentioned, you know, Canada is just up on the north and maybe they won't accept our, our invitation and actually will want to take over us. Given the way the country is going, I think the Canadians have decided that it's better to leave uh, <laughs> south of the, the parallel to take care of what they're doing there. But because, can I follow on that really quickly, Harvey? Because I wanted to ask Russ Feingold a question. I mean, let's it's obvious to all of us sitting here, but let's state the obvious. The idea of having no income tax would pose, you were on the intelligence committee, right? And I forget what others, but many, right? If we don't have an income tax. What happens to our ability to have a standing military to defend ourselves against a rising China, to deal with any assistance needed to Ukraine to neutralize Putin for any number of reasons? What are your thoughts on that, having dealt with all of that? Peter and I mentioned this in the book, is that we think that that sort of thing would be a very dangerous thing in terms of many issues. Sometimes people think of domestic programs, but we raise the specter of, the, of support for the military. And as somebody, and intelligence, as somebody who uh, sometimes fought the size of the federal 
defense budget because I thought it was bloated in different ways and duplicative. I still believed, of course, we needed a progressive funding mechanism for that as well as the intelligence community. As five years on the intelligence committee, I was frankly in awe of what I saw that, that, and the jobs that these people do. And so, yes, trying to rely on tariffs, as Peter said, as they did, did in the past and others to finance this country is not realistic. And, and the irony is some of these people are really like to brandish, uh, you know, tough guy America. But at the same time, of course, they don't want to pay any taxes to support the mechanisms that make this country safe. So this would be a big mistake. And just historically, because uh, one of the interesting things about this topic is that this is the only, only second occasion in our history where a constitutional amendment was passed by Congress and ratified by the people to overturn a Supreme Court decision. And that was the Supreme Court decision that made the, the income tax unconstitutional. A constitutional amendment was passed by the Congress that allowed the income tax. So what they're going to try to do is undo that. So, you know, we all love the 16th Amendment. And then the other structural amendment, which you guys sort of tiptoe is the 17th, which changed a great deal of the structure in which senators were elected now by the popular will as opposed to elected by state legislatures. But one of the questions that comes up was, where were the founders' heads on what the process would be for the convention? I think you guys are concerned about some guardrails that has to be put in place. Why were they less hesitant and thought that the sort of it would be a self-functioning amendment to be able to have the convention? Were they more committed to popular will, despite the fact that they had created an electoral college? What's, how do you read that phenomenon and what's your answer to it? Well, it's quite clear that the convention mechanism was flawed from the beginning. James Madison remarks in his notes, it's, it's pretty striking if you think about it. He remarked in his notes, which we could think were, were potentially written contemporaneously. Some scholars argue were, were written a bit later. Nonetheless, they were written within his lifetime. Madison remarked that the convention mechanism was flawed because there were, in his words, insufficient constitutional regulations dictating how the, the procedure should work. And how prescient was he? These are the, precisely the problems that we're dealing with today. Issues of form and quorum are now, there are answers being written to these, these uncertainties that are quite advantageous to certain interests today. And so we're concerned because there are no rules for how to function. Constitutional amendment is a good thing, and constitutional conventions could be a great thing. There are many issues in modern life today that are ripe for formal constitutional reform. But without, as, as you said, Harvey, these, these guardrails to guide the debate towards what we might think of as kind of the high plane of ideals of constitutional reform, we fear a, a true constitutional crisis where a convening is called and there are legitimate concerns raised about the veracity of that convening uh, and, and also the rules under which it's being held. And that would be a true crisis. There is no mechanism to resolve the uncertainties. We argue that any legal issues pertaining to a convention are outside the court's ambit, that they're non-justiciable. And, and, and so we worry about this kind of true crisis moment that could be triggered. So, Harvey, I'd like to just add that, you know, so I think our view is that it wasn't that they just trusted that people would be able to figure out how to do a convention. They were in a bad situation. They, they were near the end of the time. You know, Mason was saying, you've got to you've got to put this thing back in here. And they just didn't put it together. It was using Akila Mars phrase that Peter just used that he used toward about the Electoral College. It was a misfire. And that is really you have to recognize that 
famous Benjamin Franklin phrase about what they were doing there. He said, if we don't hang together, we will surely hang separately. That was the mindset. And I think this, this thing was one of those things that, that happened because they were under tremendous pressure. And I don't think it was really done right. The argument is often raised on the, amongst convention proponents today that, well, everybody knew how it would work. It didn't need to be written down because it was just generally understood. And to bolster that argument, they say, well, why don't we just look to the 1787 convention as precedent? I mean, it really makes no sense if you just take a few seconds to think about it. Why would you look to a convention convened under a completely different document, the Articles of Confederation, and thus under a completely different theory of constitutionalism and national union? Why would you look to that convening and to, to see how you would constitute a new convention that was drafted and conceived under a completely different legal structure? Again, all you need to do is look to James Madison's notes. If it was indeed so apparent and everybody in the room understood how the convention would function, why would this leading intellectual have signed a note saying, hey, wait a second, maybe this thing that we wrote here didn't, isn't too great. There's some problems here. What's clear is that were this convening called, it would pose serious. Uh, and, and that's both why we, we are giving a, a warning about this in our book, but also why we end the book where we do thinking about reform, because we need to answer some of these questions. All right. Well, let's take a minute to talk about some of the things that have happened. We've haven't in the 1800s, there were no constitutional conventions. Do I have that right, Peter? Right. I mean, there were applications for conventions. There were some applications uh, in the 1830s, mainly having to do with tariffs. There were, again, some applications for an Article 5 convention to war. And then there were applications right at the end of the 19th century, which are really the the beginning of the progressive era fervor. But there were no conventions called. But of course, we had some path-breaking amendments ratified uh, in the 19th century, including the Reconstruction Amendments. There's never been a constitutional convention under Article 5, ever. So we wouldn't really even know what one might look like. It let's could be get, a free-for-all. Let's get the daymare on the table. So as opposed <laughs> to the nightmare, what do you guys see given the variety of applications, if this takes place, what could possibly happen that may make us want to move to Canada? What are the things that are really got your guys' dander up about this? Well, I don't think it's our dander. We just think you and, I, just think you <laughs> and everybody that's else. That's not fair, Harvey. Uh, Elizabeth said she had never really dealt with this. Neither had I, neither anybody else, neither of you. Uh, when I talked, when I created the course about Article 5, I found out nobody had ever done this before, and I sort of did it out of curiosity because it hadn't been done. But what started to happen, Harvey, was we started in addition, before Peter was my student, and then when he was like suggested that we do the book, we started to, to think about this history, and all of that was fascinating. We finally got to the point where we realized there was really a pretty sophisticated movement. You call it a day mirror, you can call it a nightmare, but these people are very organized. And one of of our chapters is entitled, because this is what they say, these far-right people, what Trump and the Tea Party couldn't do. And my former colleague, Rick Santorum, the former presidential mm -hmm. candidate, says he doesn't sound like he's heading to Philadelphia to talk to James Madison. He says, we're planning on putting resources, people in place to get us to where the safety's off and we have a live weapon in our hands. So, you know, the former senator from your state there. And then they right. went down to Williamsburg in 2016, and they held a, not the first, but the, a very sophisticated uh, several-day conference in Williamsburg. 
And this is how we describe uh, what it is. They had a, a constitutional war game. The enemy, the federal government, the warriors, the who's who of the hard right establishment, and the battlefield, Article 5. And they had a guy dressed up as George Washington to come out and, and you know, and say, say this. But then we, we are very, uh, feel very strongly that people have to know that how hard they're working on this. They had a real process over several days where they, uh, we liked, we wrote, even to a casual observer, the debate would have been impressive. Delegates, the vast majority of whom were conservative Republicans aligned with the Tea Party movement, mostly state legislators associated with ALEC. They had working committees, they parsed amendment texts, they weighed the legal meeting of certain terms and phrases and hashed out draft proposals. And, you know, some passed, others did not. But the key thing here, Harvey, is that when it came down to vote, and this is why we think it's a more, maybe more like a nightmare than a daymare, is they had the voting on the basis of one vote for, per state. And that, of course, is wild malapportionment. It is the Electoral College on steroids. And if you like, one of us can tell you some of the things they actually passed. We don't have to guess. We don't have to have nightmares about it. Uh, we can tell exactly what it is that they voted for mm-hmm. or would like to vote for. So what did they vote for? Well, the results of the mock convention was we wrote a hard right constitutional wish list. Proposed amendments would radically transform the modern government were adopted, as Peter pointed out, restricting Congress's lawmaking authority to a tiny fraction of its current extent. So imagine whether anything could have been done about COVID under this provision, almost certainly not. Restricting federal agencies' rulemaking authority. How do you think the EPA would do on climate change and clean water under that provision? We mentioned before they voted to repeal the income tax. They require onerous supermajorities akin to the filibuster to raise other taxes. And we believe, based on other statements, that their favorite provision that they passed is one where if 30 states, legislatures, I want to emphasize that, just the legislatures vote to overturn a congressional passed law or a federal regulation, it is nullified, to use the famous word of James Calhoun. There is an important feature, their arguments, I think bears a mention here too, which is this concept of the amalgamation theory that they seem to rely on one and two, sort of the idea that all these odd bedfellow applications, all these odd disparate thoughts about how to change the constitution should somehow group. Do I have that right, Peter? Group and and somehow reach a majority of states by this. It's like whatever happened in 1790, can ride all the way through history until now, and you're allowed to group these applications? Is this the theory? Right. So there's this pretty remarkable uh, turn of events. A year or so ago, Governor Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, was speaking to a group of state legislators, and he made the pretty dramatic claim that the threshold had been satisfied, that Congress needed to issue a call. Just recently in Congress, and I think in July, a resolution was introduced that made the same claim, saying that Congress should issue a call. And there's actually an an ongoing litigation, I believe in the Southern District of Texas, making the exact same claim. So you ask yourself, how in the world are they justifying these claims? Well, there's a theory that we debunk in the book. It really has no legal basis. But nonetheless, there's a theory that's being told to state legislators uh, and, and other interested parties that these applications from history can kind of be used from beyond the grave to support contemporary activist efforts. And that they, what they try to do is they strip these applications of all of their animating purposes. 
So when the New York legislature says that they want a convention to propose a Bill of Rights in 1790, that's immaterial. It's an application for a convention nonetheless, and thus it can be used, accounted with these contemporary activists whose purposes are quite different. Our guest tonight has been Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville, authors of the important new book that we commend to you, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Again, we will provide you with links to where you can purchase the book and where you can locate their speaking engagements. And I want to thank you all for listening tonight to NSLT. We know that you don't have a lot of time and you've given over some of that to us this evening. But we ask that you share this episode with a friend, perhaps somebody that doesn't share your political views or doesn't look like you or both. And why don't you have coffee and talk about it? I think that might be a very good use of your time and a good act of civic responsibility. We do encourage you on NSLT to speak to persons who don't look like you and don't share your views because we think that's in the interest of the national security of the United States. We also wanted to let you know that we have an annual national security law conference occurring on September 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C. It's in person. Just remember, social media is not networking. You need to show up. You need to talk. You need to clink a glass and have some fun. So check the agenda out. We'll make sure that you can do so in the notes as well. If you need to reach out to us, please do so on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. Holly McMahon is a co-producer with me, along with being an amazing leader of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And of course, I'm grateful to Harvey and the advisory committee. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.